Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. Good morning, and good morning to all you guys watching online. I know it's a uh, holiday weekend, so my guess we got a lot of people uh, out and about watching our service online. So thank you being a part of our, our online community and joining all these wonderful people here. Man, I'm excited today. I don't know. We just, uh, we've had a lot of energy here uh, in the building, in the room, and just uh, being together today. So um, uh, that's, that's at least the way I feel. So I'm glad you're here. Um, and, and Chris is right. We've done some amazing things with our Christmas offering. Uh, we're not done yet. There's a few other things left to be done, and we'll let you know about those as they happen. But I wanted to share with you uh, some pictures of one of the things that we did do with our Christmas offering this year. Uh, For those of you who might not be aware, uh, part of our Christmas offering went to provide Christmas uh, gifts and a meal and a lot of other fun things for all of the children in the New Life Children's Home in Peru. And uh, we wanted to show you some pictures of uh, they sent us of their Christmas uh, time together. And all of this is because of you and your generosity. And uh, not only were we able to give them presents and a meal, but we are also able to give uh, the staff a nice little bonus. And we, we, you guys were so generous, we're also able to uh, send them on a beach trip, uh, the kids from the, uh, the children's home. And um, so anyway, I just wanted to thank you for that. None of that would be possible uh, without your generosity. And the cool thing is, these aren't just, you know, random children at some place that we have no relationship with. We've actually, you know, been to Peru and been to this children's home multiple times and we're going to be there this summer uh, for our church's missions trip. And uh, you're going to meet uh, many of those children. And um, so just, just again, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is your generosity that enables our church uh, to do the things that it does here at Coastal, in our community, uh, and around the world. So thank you. Um, so Last week, we jumped back into our series, Revolution of Faith, as we're making our way through Romans. And uh, last week, we were in Romans chapter 9. And if you remember, the chapter ends with the Apostle Paul explaining that even though the Jewish people had spent their entire lives, you know, trying to earn a right relationship with God, somehow they never experienced it. They missed it. Look back at the end of chapter 9 again, verses 31 and 32. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. So that's what Paul is going to explain now uh, in chapter 10. He wanted the Jews to understand, and he wants us to understand today as well that even with all of their zeal, okay, all of their enthusiasm, all of their efforts, that they miss the righteousness of God. They miss salvation. And that's how chapter 10 begins. Look at verse one. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Wow, that is such a a great verse. It's a telling verse. It's a powerful verse. And and I read that, and it kind of, you know, lets me see the Apostle Paul, see his real heart here, because he kind of hits the pause button for a moment from all of the details of his arguments, uh, all of his theology, and then he lets us kind of open the window to see his, his true heart. 
You know, his love for the Jewish people, his people, by the way, it just spills over. In fact, the, the phrase there, the longing of my heart, it's actually from one Greek word that means my deepest, deepest desire. So there's no question but that Israel was in his heart. And he cared for them. He loved them. And these deep feelings of, of love and affection just pour out in his consistent prayer to God for the lost. Now, I want to pause right there for a second. I want to make an important point, And it's this. Don't ever let anyone tell you not to pray for the lost. Okay? You know, because there is today this, uh, there is a brand of Christianity, there's a brand of churches out there that don't really believe in evangelism. And their argument is, well, you know, ultimately it's all up to God and it has nothing to do with us. And, uh, you know, what if they're not really one of the, one of the chosen, one of the elect? And they kind of say it in a real, you know, pious way. Well, that's what I love about Romans chapter 10. Because sure, it is, it's the balance of what we saw in Romans 9. Now, yeah, in Romans 9, you know, Paul dealt with Israel's unbelief from the standpoint of God's sovereign plan. And we talked about that last week. But now here in chapter 10, he explains their unbelief from the standpoint of their own responsibility in the matter. You see, don't ever let anyone suggest just a, a simple one-dimensional view of God's redemptive purposes, as if it all depends on him and it's got nothing to do with the individual responding in obedient faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's, a, it, it's not either or. I'm a big proponent of both and. And that's why Paul here is praying with, with all of his heart. His deepest desire is that the Israelites would, would turn to Christ and be saved. Now my point is, if we really have a heart of God, if we have the heart of God, okay, our theology will never turn off our compassion, our heart for people. If, if your theology, if your you know, theological system of belief has somehow turned off your love for people, your desire for people to be saved and to come to faith, then let me tell you something. It's bad theology. I don't care how you slice it, it's bad. And nothing evidences the heart of God than our desire to see people come to him and be saved. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. And that's what motivated Paul here to pray for their salvation. Are you? Who are you praying for? You know, last week we, uh, we handed out some little you're invited cards, just little, you know, business cards, little square cards or business cards. We said, hey, you know, where you live, work, parent, and play in your everyday life, you know, just use these as a simple invitation tool. You know, even said, hey, you know, after church, when you go out to eat and you go to a restaurant and you leave a very generous tip, Leave one of our You're Invited cards. If you don't tip well, don't invite anybody here to Coastal, okay? Don't leave a card. They'll probably throw it in the trash. But who are you inviting? 
So today inside your bulletin, a little bit different angle, um, is something else. It's called an invest and invite card. Now, this is not for you to give away. This is for you. This is for you to keep in your wallet, to keep in your car, keep in your glove box. And on the front of it, it says, I will seek to invest in others who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus and invite them to Coastal. And then on the back, the following is a list of three people that I am attempting to invest in and invite to Coastal Community Church. I'll pray for them daily, I'll share my own witness, and I'll invite them to Coastal. And so the idea for this is just for you, is to serve as a reminder. You know, to be like the Apostle Paul, to have a heart for lost people, to have a a heart for people who are far from God. And uh, just to keep this with you, and you know, the idea is we ought to be able to, you know, walk up to one another and say, hey, who's in your wallet, right? Not a credit card, but, but this, you know, who's in your wallet, your invested invite card. And just be praying for them, thinking about them, reaching out to them. Now, in verse two, hey, by the way, and if you would like for us, our prayer team, the pastors and staff here, to pray for the people in your wallet, the people on your card that you're reaching out to, write their name down uh, on your Connect card today. Write their name online. And uh, our pastors, our staff, would love to join with you and praying for your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people that you're reaching out to. Let's continue. Verse two, he says, I know what enthusiasm they have for God. Now, in other words, Paul's saying, hey, I have firsthand knowledge. I know about it. In fact, uh, listen to Galatians 1, 13 and 14. He says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my what? What's he say? My zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. That's important. Keep that, keep that phrase in your mind. So Paul was saying, hey, listen, I understand. I was up to my eyeballs in zealousness, in, in zeal. But then look at the end of verse 2. But it is misdirected zeal. It's misdirected. In other words, simply being zealous and sincere, it doesn't save you. You know, lots of people today are, are sincere and zealous for God as they understand him. The Mormons are zealous and sincere. The Jehovah Witnesses, they're zealous and sincere. Islamic fundamentalists, they're zealous and, and sincere. But zeal and sincerity alone never saved anybody. And Paul acknowledges here that the Jews have always been zealous for God, but that zeal was not based on the knowledge of God's truth. They had substituted, he says, their own wisdom and their own knowledge. They had substituted that and twisted God's word to accommodate their own beliefs, their own traditions. Therefore, verse three, look at this. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Now, the rest of chapter 10, it all flows out of these first few verses. So Israel had a zeal for God, but it was misdirected. It was misguided. 
They, they didn't understand God's way, his true way of, of making people right. Uh, the King James Version says they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, the obvious question, though, is how? I mean, how in the world did that happen? These are the covenant people of God, the people of promise, you know, all of their ancestry, all of that. Why didn't they know? Well, that's what Paul explains in the rest of the chapter. And he gives us four reasons why they didn't know. And I think they apply to us today. We're actually going to look at the first two of those reasons today, and then next Sunday come back, and we're going to check out the following, the, the rest of it, the two, two more reasons. So number one, if you're taking notes, Israel was ignorant, first of all, of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, being religious is not the same as being righteous. Israel's failure had to do with righteousness. Because in terms of religious zeal, they got an A+. I mean, they were off the charts. But in terms of true, saving righteousness, they failed. Now, why? Well, they didn't truly understand the depth of God's righteousness, of God's holiness. Psalm 71, 19 says, your righteousness, God, reaches to the heaven. You who have done great things, who is like you, God? Now, what's the obvious answer? Nobody. Nobody's like God. Israel forgot that. In fact, in Psalm 50, 21, God said to them, you thought I was exactly like you. You see, what they were doing, they, they tried to bring God down to their level by establishing their own righteousness standards. And they made a serious mistake. They minimized the holiness of God. But here's what we gotta see today. We do the same thing, we do. I mean, you can't look at the world today and what's happening in our world and the, just the downward spiral of, of humanity and not realize that people have lost sight of the holiness of God. Or we tend to imagine him to be more tolerant and less holy than he really is. And we underplay his hatred of sin and his promise of inevitable judgment. People actually think, well, you know, I mean, just live my life however I want to and everything's going to be fine. You know, do a few humanitarian things and, and uh, you know, God understands. You know, he's a nice guy. He's just somebody up there that wants everybody down here to feel good about themselves. And so we make God out to be more tolerant of evil than he is and we make ourselves out to be more holy than we are. We pull God down a little and we try to shove ourselves up a little and we think, okay, you know, not bad, pretty close. You know, sprinkle in a few good, good deeds and religious activity and, you know, we're almost there. Listen to me. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. That is a fatal, fatal error. Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. 
He is righteous. He is holy. I mean, why do you think in the book of Proverbs alone, 18 times it says, fear the Lord. Why do you think all throughout the Old Testament, you know, and, and as a church this year, we read through the Bible. Man, you remember account after account after account of God demonstrating his holy anger, his holy hatred of sin. People died when they violated his holiness. Do you remember the story of Nadab and Abihu who offered uh, strange fire to God? They, they were fooling around with their, you know, their priestly duties and functions and they might have been a little drunk and God struck them dead. Do you remember in Genesis 6 where God drowned, destroyed the entire world except for eight people? In Genesis 19, 19, when God destroyed the, the entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, what about King Uzziah? I mean, he's a pretty good guy, pretty good king overall, but his heart got proud. God gave him leprosy, struck him dead. What about the seemingly small sin of Uzzah? He, he's the guy who reached out, remember? And he touched, just touched the Ark of the Covenant to catch it before it, fall, before it fell and hit the ground. And the moment his hand touched the Ark, God struck him dead. Listen, when Isaiah finally saw God face to face and he came, into, came to grips with the holiness of God, this is what he wrote. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Peter reached a, uh, reacted in a very similar way in Luke chapter 5, when he first recognized that Jesus really was God in the flesh. The very first thing out of his mouth was, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. On another occasion in Luke 8, when the disciples were uh, crossing the Sea of Galilee, remember this, and a, and a fierce storm uh, rose up, and they're freaking out, they're terrified. Jesus, of course, is, is sleeping. They wake him up, and they're like, Jesus, you gotta do something. We're gonna die, we're gonna drown. Jesus rebuked the storm, and in an instant, everything was calm. And the Bible says that the disciples were actually even more terrified then. Why? Well, what's worse than having a storm on the outside of your boat? It's having almighty, holy God right in the center of your boat. And that's why they were afraid. And you say, well, Pastor Chris, how then, how then am I going to make it? You know, how am I going to make it? Well, the Bible is actually crystal clear here. You're not going to make it on your own. You're not. But that's exactly what the Jews were trying to do. They were trying to do it on their own, on their own, you know, in their own way, and their own standards. Let me, let me see if I can explain it like this. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Let's say I go to Walmart today, and uh, I pick up a, you know, a decent uh, basketball. So a basketball in uh, Pastor Chris's hands. In my hands, it's worth about 40 bucks, Okay? But evidently, a basketball in Steph Curry's hand is worth about $48 million. Okay, it all depends on whose hands it's in, right? A baseball in my hand, same thing. I go pick up a baseball, maybe it costs me 10 bucks. Evidently, a baseball in Justin Verlander's hand is worth about $43 million. It all depends on whose hands it's in. 
a staff or a rod in my hand. Maybe I can chase away, you know, a wild animal. But a rod in Moses' hands will part a mighty sea. A slingshot in my hand. Maybe it's nothing more than a child's toy. But a slingshot in David's hand is a mighty weapon. It all depends on whose hands it's in. Two fish and five loaves in my hand, maybe a couple of fish sandwiches. But two fish and five loaves in the hand of God will feed thousands. Wood and nails in my hands. If you're lucky, maybe I can build a birdhouse. But wood and nails in the hands and feet of Jesus means salvation for the entire world. It all depends on whose hands it's in. And that's the point. The point that Paul is making here in Romans 10 is that the Jews were attempting to take the matter of salvation and righteousness in their own hands. And so many people are trying to do the same thing today. And that's what he was saying in verse three, that the Jewish people didn't understand or accept God's way of being made right. Instead, they took it in their own hands. They went after a homemade holiness, you know, of their own doing. And all throughout Scripture, you know what you hear? That it was an offense to God. Why? Why was that so offensive to God? Well, again, what's the standard? What's the standard? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 48? Be what? What's the word? Be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, the standard of judgment, the standard of comparison, the standard of righteousness so that you'll be able to stand before God one day is nothing short of flawless perfection. Flawless perfection. You say, whoa, 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 wait a second here, Pastor Chris. How in the world Am I expected to achieve that? I mean, that's impossible. That's the point. That's the point. In fact, that was the whole purpose of the law. Listen, the purpose of the law, of the Old Testament, of the commands, the law of Moses, Levitical law, all of it was not to produce holiness and righteousness, but to reveal our lack of it. In the first place, the purpose of the law was to reveal our sin and our need for a Savior. But thanks be to God, His grace and His mercy come to our rescue in the person of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's saying here in Romans 10. That's what he's saying to you and me. Listen, anybody who seeks to gain access to God through their own righteousness, through their own goodness, through their own good works, ultimately is doomed to fail. You're, not, you're never gonna be good enough. And that's what Paul, that's what led him to say what he said in verse four. Listen to this. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, listen to this, all who believe in him are made right with God. Another translation says that Christ is the culmination of the law. Another one says he is the end of the law. Now, does that mean that now that Jesus has come and we're in the New Testament, that the Old Testament goes out the window? You know, that, that it no longer has any value to Christians. 
No, not at all. In fact, look what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. You see, Christ is the end of the law, the culmination of the law in the sense that he's the fulfillment of everything that it represented, everything that it embodied. Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the law points to the need of a Messiah, points to Jesus. The righteousness that the law was trying to define in Jesus Christ, he demonstrated it. The righteousness that the law demanded, Jesus fulfilled. He was the only one who lived a completely, totally perfect, righteous life. But tragically, a lot of the Jewish people missed it. And so do a lot of people today. Another reason for that, number two, Israel was ignorant of the role of faith. The role of faith. They didn't understand the role of faith. Look at verses five through eight. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. Now, stop there for just a moment. Again, Paul's basically saying, okay, hey, everybody listen up. If you want to pursue a righteousness on your own, you know, just keeping the law, doing good things, all that, fine. That's fine. But just keep in mind, it is all or nothing. Okay, because God is absolutely holy. That's the standard, flawless perfection. Always doing the right thing, never doing the wrong thing. In fact, always doing the right thing for the right reasons. But as soon as you fail one time, you can never bat a thousand again. But that's the standard. Now, sure, if that's what you want to do, fine. But it's all or nothing. Verse six. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth. And don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. You see, they were trying to accomplish the impossible. They're trying to make it to heaven all on their own. And so what's cool here is that Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, you know, reaching back to one of their own heroes, and he reminds them that even Moses taught that the righteousness that is by faith doesn't come that way. He's saying, listen, don't think that you can get to heaven, you know, get to God by ascending to heaven on your own or descending into the deep and bringing Jesus back from the dead. You you can't do it by some impossible, impossible task or you know, uh, impossible journey. The righteousness that you need, though, it's available. Right here, right now, through faith. Verse eight, in fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It's on your lips. It's in your heart. He's saying it's right here. Right here and right now. You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to do anything else to find it. And then he says, and that message is the very message about faith that we preach. And so what comes next are two of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible. Because they answered the question, okay, how can I be made right with God? How am I saved? How does that happen? And Paul says, you don't have to go anywhere else. 
It's right here. It's the message we've been proclaiming. And that message is this. Look at verses nine and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Let's break that down just a little bit. Where does salvation take place? What does Paul say? In your heart. When does it take place? The moment you believe. Now, what exactly is the heart in this context here? Well, obviously, it's more than just the, you know, the organ that's you know, pumping blood through your chest right now. Biblically speaking, the heart refers to the core of a person. You know, it's your, it's your innermost, deepest part of you. And so saving faith is the affirmation, the deepest part of yourself, that you believe, you truly believe that Jesus died in your place on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin, and then he was raised from the dead to prove who he was and to make us right with God. Now listen carefully. That is not just, it's more than just a mental recognition of those facts. It's more than that. In fact, James 2.19 says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. But even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. So obviously, Saving faith is more than, you know, just believing, recognizing, acknowledging certain facts. He says even the demons do that. Now think about this for a second. According to James, there is a demonic faith that doesn't save. Now what are the characteristics of that demonic faith? Well, first of all, demonic faith can have a right theology, I mean, you can have a right. You can you can have the you can have all all of it figured out in your head. At least you think you have. You know, think about it. Do do the demons know who God is, or are they confused about Him? No, they've seen more of God's work than all of mankind combined. Secondly, demonic faith can have a fear of judgment. They can fear God, have a fear of judgment. James says they tremble here. You know, in the New Testament, when Jesus encountered demons while He was on the earth. They often would cry out in fear. They would flee. They'd say, hey, don't send us over the cliff. Don't send us into the pigs, you know. And then thirdly, demonic faith has a lot of religious experiences. I mean, they've been in the church for years, masquerading as as false teachers. The Bible says disguised even as angels of light. So what's your point, Pastor Chris? My point is, There are a lot of people today who have a knowledge of God, maybe even fear God's judgment, and have had some religious experiences. But they're not saved. You see, you can have a knowledge of the facts, believe in the reality of those facts. You can even feel some conviction over your sin, you know, and fear God's judgment. 
And you can even be religious and attend church and do good things. You can do all of that and still go to hell. What's missing? Well, look back at verses 9 and 10 again. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Openly declaring your faith. In what? What did verse nine say? That Jesus is Lord. True saving faith not only believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God, that God raised him from the dead, but it acknowledges Jesus as Lord. Genuine salvation is always evidenced by the acknowledgement that Jesus is the all-encompassing sovereign ruler of your life. Where it says openly declaring your faith. Some translations say confessing your faith. Some translations say living out your faith. The word confessing there means that your, your, your actions match your words. Okay, Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler um, in Mark chapter 10? He comes to Jesus and he'd been a good person, kept, you know, he said, kept all the commandments, but he still, he, he knew he was lacking something. And so he asked Jesus, what, I need, what, I, what do I need to do to be saved? Do you remember what Jesus told him? He said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, why did Jesus tell him that? You know, do you get saved by selling your stuff and giving it to the poor? No. That would be salvation by, you know, good works. So why did Jesus tell him that? Well, you see, Jesus could see his heart. And he was revealing who was really in charge of his life. And Jesus' main point was, come and follow me. And when the guy balked at that, he knew. When he was unwilling to do it, he, he knew that he was unwilling to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus in his life. That's the issue. Jesus is Lord. You know, there, there was a similar exchange um, at the end of Luke chapter 9. Jesus is is challenging people to come and follow me. Come and follow me. And each person basically had a different excuse. You know, well, I gotta take care of this first. I gotta go take care of that. I gotta go, you know, bury my dad. I gotta, you know, there's other things that I've got to do. Over and over and over again, it's a lordship issue. They wanted to be in control of their life. They wanted to stay in charge. That's saving faith. Jesus is Lord. To, to believe in Jesus and to openly declare him as Lord means you trust him. It means you trust him with every area of your life. When I say that Jesus is the Lord of my life, I'm saying he's God, I'm saying he is the Messiah, I believe that, but I also believe that he's the leader of my life. He's Lord. What about you?
Listen. Your righteousness is not going to be enough. You know, you can go to church all you want. You can do good things. Try to be a good person. Your goodness is not flawless perfection. Your goodness is not holiness. There was only one who ever was that walked this earth. And he did it for you. It was Jesus. So that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And God in his great love sent him to this earth to pay the penalty for your sin. And he took all of that onto the cross and he died and he rose again. He rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was all along. And if you'll put your faith, what is that? What is saving faith? It's trust and obedience. It's Jesus is the Messiah and he's Lord. It's both. It's not either or, it's both and. And you can confess that and declare that today and you can be saved. So that when one day, when you stand before God in all of his holiness, he'll look at you and he'll say, perfect, perfect, flawless perfection. Not because of you, not because you kept the law, not because you were a good person, but because you placed your faith in the only one who ever was perfect, Jesus. Without that, you're not gonna make it. But listen, coming to Christ in faith, it's not fire insurance. It's the best way to live here and now. You want hope? You want peace? You want joy? It's found in Christ. And you can have it today. Let me read that verse one last time. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. You can be saved today. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for that ultimate sacrifice. Thank you for your great, great love and mercy and kindness, knowing that we, could, we couldn't do it. We can't do it. We can't be good enough. We can't be righteous enough on our own. God, I pray today we would throw all that aside and we would just humbly bow the knee and cry out to you, I, I do believe, I believe, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he is the Messiah. I believe he came to pay for my sin. I believe he went to the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead and he is alive. In my, in my deepest, innermost soul, I believe it. And today, I ask him to forgive me and to be my Lord, the ruler of my life. And for the rest of my life, God, until I until you call me home or you come again, I just want to follow Jesus. I want to follow. And Father, I pray for Coastal right now that we would always be a church that prays for and reaches out to those people who don't know you. 
that like Paul, we have a heart for those who are lost. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.